0: life and everything. We were blessed to welcome the chaplain to the Bishop of Sheffield, Harry Steele. He's a great guy. He was talking about why he loves the Bible even though it's a hard book to read. Some of the things he said are very new to us. Some of them are a challenge and some of them you'll disagree with. That is okay. He said that a few times on the night. All we ask, I guess, is that you think about it. You ask God to lead you by his spirit and hopefully we will all come to find Jesus in our lives more as we read the scriptures. On the evening, Harry spoke for about 30 minutes, then we had a break to talk on our tables before coming back for questions and answers from people who came along. I hope you find it interesting, illuminating, maybe challenging, and it will help deepen your understanding of the Bible. Here we go. Okay, it is so wonderful to see you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for coming down. I hope you've got some uh, food you're enjoying and a drink. and um, We'll have more chances to go back, so don't feel like you've, you've missed your chance forever and there's plenty and, and we can get some more out of the kitchen as well. Um, I'm James and I am a student vicar and I'm here a few days a week, um, as well as essays that make you write about all kinds of things. Um, it's really, really good and um, it's wonderful uh, to be here working. But tonight we've got a special guest with us and Harry's here, so you can come up, Harry, if you want. Give him a clap, yeah? Come on, come on, enthusiasm. Okay, so um, every month at uh, God Life and Everything, we've got a different person coming to share something that they care about, and um, Harry cares about the Bible, and he's got some good, good opinions and perspectives, and we're hoping that it opens our eyes and um, that we kind of all, through it all, draw closer to God as well. So we're not here just to be challenged, we're here to meet with God as well. Um, do you want to say anything about yourself, or I'll just, I can leave you to it?
1: I'm pretty boring, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Good start. My name's Harry. I'm a trainee <laughs> vicar as well. <laughs> He's past that. Yeah. He's past that. Uh, no, I will. I mean, I will say something. Um, yeah. I'm. I'm. Uh, in my day job, is chaplain um, to the Bishop of Sheffield, who's coming here next Sunday morning, I believe. Uh, people always say, what does a Bishop's chaplain do? Mainly find churches for him to preach at on a Sunday morning. Um, I uh we, I do a lot more than that, um, but that's that's part of, of what I do. It's a great joy to work with Bishop Pete, who's fantastic, and I just try and hang on to his coattails and keep up with everything that he's doing and, and the hard work that's going on with him and uh, Bishop Sophie and the other uh, Bishop senior staff team. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. I spent three years uh, recently down south where I worked for St. Albans Diocese as a church growth officer. I also worked, while I was doing that, half-time. I worked half-time as a the uh, associate director of an organization called Leading Your Church Into Growth, which is a national, well um, oh, it's international, because I went to New Zealand last year, uh, an international charity that helps um, lay and ordain leaders to grow ordinary um, local parish churches. Um, and while I was doing those two half-time jobs, I was also house for duty of two very rural um, parishes in very affluent North Hertfordshire It is a different world down there. We missed Sheffield, so we moved back. Um, But prior to doing that, we've bumped around Sheffield loads. So um, I did a bit on St. John's Park. I did a bit at um, Attercliffe. I did a bit at Arborthorne, very bit Arbathorn, I did a bit at Greenhill, which is Norton, South Sheffield. Um, And whilst I was at St. Peter's Greenhill, I had this really awkward trainee vicar, um, who's now your vicar.
0: And you're recovering.
1: And I'm still in, I still have therapy for that. Still have therapy. Yeah.
0: Nice. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Well, oh, good, oh, we'll leave that there. <laughs> um, we'll say, I'll just say a quick prayer before we get going and then I'll leave you to it. Um, Lord God, thank you for um, Harry and all of his experience um, around the country and thank you for bringing him back to Sheffield. We pray that you would be with us today and that we would all meet with you through what's said and um, the things that we hear from Harry.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, I was kind of given that, I feel like I was given the theme of um, the Bible uh, and was told, oh, you, you know, you're really passionate about the Bible, Harry, so you speak on the Bible. If you ask my boss, who is really passionate about the Bible, he would disagree that I'm passionate about the Bible. We just did a thing for Holy Saturday, the Saturday before Easter, and um, we had this big service in the cathedral, and because it was cathedral worship, there's lots of liturgy, and they sing large sections of scripture, and there's about seven readings, and uh, Bishop Pete's got the service sheet, and he said, oh, I see where salvation history lights this evening, because there weren't the requisite 12 readings or something like that. So I am passionate about the Bible, but it's all by degrees, so don't panic if you think, what, have I let myself in for this evening um i 'm going to talk for uh, well i 'll gauge your uh, warmth towards what i 'm saying and adjust it accordingly, but I would not be more than half an hour um, and might be less and then I think you get a chance to have a bit of a chat about some of the things that i 've said and then ask questions um everything that i 've said is 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 my Um, understanding my approach um, I want to just disassociate myself a little bit from joy Um, and it's not necessarily you know uh, you don't have to believe what I believe and what I'm going to say and and that's all okay so this I think is a really safe place um, where we all have really strong thoughts and opinions on the Bible hopefully um, and none of them are wrong well some of them are wrong Uh, I grew up in a church, I actually grew up in a Pentecostal church, and I did, my, um, I did uh, training to become a Pentecostal minister in the Assemblies of God's um, church. But the church I grew up in taught me this acrostic um, about, uh, that, uh, about understanding what the purpose of the Bible was uh, based on the letters uh, of Bible, and it is basic instruction before leaving earth basic instruction before leaving earth. I don't know if you've heard that before. It's really clever, isn't it? The only problem, there's one problem with it. It's a small problem. It's absolute nonsense. Okay. Um, So basic, let's be clear right from the top of this. The Bible is, there's nothing basic about the Bible. There is nothing basic about the Bible. It's not easy to read and it's not easy to understand. And so when we read the Bible, we should ask the Holy Spirit... Uh, for help when we come to Scripture, when we come to read Scripture. And we should also approach Scripture with our God-given intellect and the gifts that God has given us. Um, But as well as that, we should also come to Scripture with other people's God-given intellect and gifts as well. Um, Historians, theologians, biblical scholars, language experts, these are all people who can help us to wrestle uh, with and understand the Scriptures. And at the very least, you know, everyone should have on their book case somewhere, um, the lion's handbook to the Bible to help them to go deeper into reading scriptures. So whatever else you know about the Bible, know this. It is not basic. Instructions, um, basic instructions. Instructions is also, I'll be honest, largely nonsense. There are a few bits of the Bible, uh, maybe the law um, or some of the wisdom literature, that might come close to being instructions, but even those are not really Instructions in the way that we think of instructions. Um, for example, the one bit of the Bible that I quite often get quoted at me is Leviticus 19, verse 28, which says, You shall not make any gashes in your flesh for the dead, or tattoo any marks upon you. I am the Lord. People love quoting that those verses at me. And I say, That's beautiful. Can I just share with you the verse before that one? Leviticus 19, 27. You shall shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beards. Wilkinson's sword would be out of business if we all literally followed the instructions of the Bible. No one would no one who professed to be a Christian or following God would have tattoos if they literally obeyed that, but nor would any of the fellas trim the sides of their heads or shave um, their beard. Some people do try and do that, James. (laughs) Um, basic instructions, it's not basic, it's not really instructions, before leaving earth. I mean, it's just bad theology. It's just bad theology. Jesus said pretty clearly, the meat shall inherit the earth. You know, God doesn't give up on anything that God's made. We'll come on to that in a bit. And um, that's just bad theology. So whatever else the Bible is, it's not basic instructions before leaving earth. So what is it? What is the Bible? Well, firstly, Um, Because I wanted to be a little bit provocative as well. I don't think the Bible is necessarily a Christian book, it's a book about what it means to be human. It's a book that seeks to explore those moments that pretty much all of us uh, have had, I'm sure we have all had, in times and places that the Celts used to call, or still do call, thin places. So we've all had those spiritual moments in nature, or when looking at arts, or literature, or music, or at science. Moments of spiritual mystery and awe. Moments, I always call them moments of eternity. For me, it feels like I get a glimpse of eternity, whatever that means. Um, Moments that cause us to ask, who am I? And to ask, whose am I? And so it's not just a Christian book. It's a book about what it means to be human, because we all share those questions. The Bible is a library of books that are about loss and anger and transcendence and identity and belonging and um, uh, lostness and money and power and empire and poverty and joy and doubt and not that joy and hope and hopelessness. That's what the Bible is all about. And it's not so much a book about believing in God as much as a book about trying to understand God and then trying to believe in God by wrestling with God. And so I'd like to explore uh, what I think the Bible is by looking at three uh, themes. i will be about five minutes on each theme. Um, And... um, The three themes are uh, one, rethinking creation, two, resisting violence, and three, undoing judgments. I've picked those themes fairly arbitrary, uh, in a fairly arbitrary manner. Um, I don't have a necessarily good reason why I picked those three. They just jumped out at me. So, see if you like them or not. Um, So, first off, Um, approaching the Bible, thinking about what the Bible is as we rethink creation. So like I've said, the Bible is actually a collection of books written by about 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. And um, the order that those books appear in your Bible is not the order that they were written in, um, not even close. It's worth saying that because we sometimes make assumptions that everyone knows everything and all the ins and outs. But um, y- you know, that's that's not true. They're not. Uh, don't appear in the order they were written in. Um, the books of the Bible and the stories. they. Some of them are stories. Some of them are sayings. They're poems. Historical narrative. There's a bit of law in there. Prophecy. There's a sprinkling a very small sprinkling of weird apocalyptic literature, but whatever um, the type of of genre of the book that you're reading, they all began as um, an oral tradition. What I mean is that someone, probably with the exception of the epistles, but even those were recounting things that had happened to a certain extent, someone didn't just sit down and think, I'm going to write a book. They were sayings and phrases and stories and poems that were shared orally, first of all, and then written down later on. They were passed on um, by telling and sharing um, in the first place. So I want you to imagine now, um, and it's quite nice we've got this little setup. Some of you got little candles lit. We've got a few candles. So imagine yourself um, sat around a fire in the evening. Uh, imagine yourself being an Israelite family um, and imagine yourself at the time of slavery in Egypt. And so as a family, families gathering around that fire, um, you are oppressed by the Egyptian empire, forced to work seven days a week uh, to make the nation of Egypt greats and imagine that after another exhausting day at work of hard labor with no rest in sight at all someone calls for a story to cheer the mood up and to get the thoughts right and to get you focusing on the things that really matter and so someone says tell us a story because stories are really really powerful and the designated storyteller um, stands up to recount faithfully the Israelite story of creation and it's a poem really And it's not even a poem, it's two poems. And both poems recount the same events, exactly the same events, but it's weird then that they're both very different, even though they're both telling the same story. And because the creation story is two poems, they're not at all bothered with the question of how the world came into being, as fascinating as that question is. They are far more interested in why The world is what it is. And so that means that these poems are ridiculously inaccurate, scientifically speaking. Because in those poems, stars, for example, were created like way down the line when the world of science tells us that stars were about the first things that came into being. So they're not, it's not science textbooks at all. They're poems. They're not asking the question of, of uh, how did this happen? They're really drilling down on why. Why are we here? Who are we? Whose are we? And the first poem describes God Almighty. In the beginning, or maybe before the beginning, because the Hebrew language of uh, the poem is wonderfully imprecise, there is a presence of chaos, there is emptiness and void. In Hebrew, it's a rolling tohu wabohu, which kind of sounds chaotic. It's almost onomatopoeic, tohu wabohu. There's this roiling chaos, deep chaos that God serenely hovers over. In the beginning, he creates and she, because the spirit of God is a feminine word, hovers and pulses over the deep chaos and blackness. Have you ever had a glimpse, probably a scary glimpse of chaos void rolling around you? I bet you have. Just having a little chat with Kate earlier, chaplain at the hospital, and we've had, Zoe and I, this year, our own glimpse into a kind of chaos while sat in one of the rooms being wonderfully looked after at the Royal Hallamshire Hospital. So God speaks, and stuff happens, light, and Dark and sky and land and plant and trees and sun, moon and stars. You see, I told you it wasn't scientifically accurate because how can plants and trees appear before the sun? It doesn't work like that. It's a poem. It's not science. Poetry, folks. Poetry. Um, and um, the poem is headed towards a dramatic and wonderful climax in creation. And, the, and this is the climax, God makes male and female man and woman, and in this poem, the really important bit is you 're gathered around that campfire as you 're exhausted after countless days of work on the trot, you hear in that poem that God chooses to make humanity it 's not an accident, it is not a mistake, or even worse humanity is not made on purpose but that purpose is to be slaves to the gods because those are the stories that are being told by the Egyptians and by the Canaanites and by the Ugaritic people but this is your story in your creation poem purposeful creation made in the image of God and not to serve but to rule even spoiler alert when we get to Jesus in the bible then we'll learn that humanity should serve, not rule. But here, we're given dominion over creation. And then God rested. You can imagine perhaps a cheer going up around the campfire at that. And God didn't just rest. God ordained that rest was good. And God didn't just ordain that rest was good. It's a bit more than rest just being goods. Rest is not just a nice thing um, if you can do it. Um, God created the Sabbath which is more than just rest, and God made the Sabbath holy. And as you're listening to this poem, you'd think, wow, that's amazing. The first thing made holy in the whole of the Bible, it's not a person, it's not a place, it's not a temple or anything like that. It's a period of time. And the beautiful, fantastic thing about this first thing in all of creation that's made holy, this period of time, is that it belongs to everybody, is invited to enter into that Sabbath rest and to share with God, and to be with God in that holiest of moments, that Sabbath rest. Except when this poem is being told, you don't know what that rest looks like. The Israelites are being excluded from Sabbath rest by an empire that doesn't believe that God made the sun, moon, and stars, but believes that the sun, moon, and stars are God's an empire that does not believe that humans were purposefully created and does believe that people are really nothing more than slaves and their suffering increases the profit margins of the empire. They don't care for them as people. They're not as important to them as profit and power. So imagine the glint in this storyteller's eye who tells this wonderful poem. Recounting this truth to the Israelite slaves who are being treated as less than human and saying to them, You are human. You are purposefully made. You are not an accident that emerged from the primeval sludge or the blood of some dying gods after a cosmic battle. God chose to make you, and you were not created to be a slave. And then there's another poem that tells exactly the same story, but it's wonderfully different. And in this poem, the second one, God is not over and above chaos. God is on the ground planting a garden in a place that's pretty close to where you're sat as a slave around a campfire. It feels a long way away, and in some measures it is a long way away, but it's possible for you to maybe get back to that garden one day. And God creates man from the dust of the grounds. God probably gets dust under god's fingertips and fingernails and then god after creating man forms a mighty helper woman from the side of man who is incomplete without that mighty helper and you might have grown up in church as i have done and you think yeah a rib of man bad translation it's the side. it's half of man and you might have grown up in a church you think oh that's nice woman's man's helper but helper, the Hebrew word, that's why I purposely use mighty helper. That word is most often used in, in, uh, when referring to God's and God's relationship to humanity. So you can't say uh, women are just helpers, so, because God is described as humanity's helper. So that's why I purposely use that phrase, mighty helper. God might be. Almighty God, in the first poem, she might be rolling over the chaos and serenely floating above it all and calling things into being, but God also gets down and gets dirt under the fingernails. God presses his lips against the humans that he has created to breathe into them the Spirit of God, into the lungs of humanity. And those are the poems of who you are and why you are. They're poems shaped by other creation myths that are going on around them in response to those other creation myths. And they're impacted by the circumstances of slavery in Egypt. But is it true, Harry, people often say to me, and I say, what? Poems of identity, of spiritual beings, of purposeful creation, of a higher power who creates us, male and female, both in the image of God, not to be slaves, but to be free and with an inherent value. Humanity who endures empires, telling people of certain races and creeds at certain times, you have no value, you have no rights, you're really nothing to us, you have no dignity. But poems that say the deepest force of life, God's is not against you, but is for you. Yes, it's true. It was true then, and it's true now. So the second theme is resisting violence, because in the story of Genesis, sin grows, and violence grows with sin like a plague. And if anyone reads any part of the Bible for any amount of time, you will encounter this problem of conflict and violence in the pages of scriptures. And early on, Lamech boasts of his vengefulness and how many people he's gonna kill. Um, if they if they come and touch me, I'm gonna come for you and all that kind of stuff. The Israelites are enslaved by the Egyptians and they will forget that slavery by the way. And in due course, they themselves will enslave others and they will put their trust in earthly kings and place their hope in the modern war technology of the time of chariots and horses. Um, and uh, so the story of humanity, the story of the Bible, um, it, it, the story of the Bible is the story of humanity, so expect violence in the Bible, and it's there all over the, all over the place. Jesus' teaching on this is pretty simple and clear, um, even whilst being incredibly difficult to do. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But in contrast, to the law of Moses, um, the first bit of the Bible that we call the Old Testament, um, the Hebrew Scriptures, um, There's bits in there that seems to give divine command to slaughter all the enemies of God, every man, woman, and child. Uses a phrase: "Show them no mercy." I thought this was a book about love. There are around a thousand passages in the Bible that have the theme of God's blazing anger and judgment and destruction and death. I love that song by uh, Bob Dylan. Um, that says, you don't count the dead when God's on your side. And that seems to be something going on in the story of Joshua and um, the attitude of the Israelites to the Canaanites. In light of this, you think, well, how do, we, how do we approach this violence in Scripture? There's a number of ways you can do it. The first thing is, um, is you can just say, well, that's just the Old Testament, Harry, and, you know, well, let's just focus on the New Testament. Um, That would be a great solution if it were true, but it isn't, because there's lots of passages in the New Testament um, that can be used, don't have to be, but have in the past been used, for example, to condone centuries of slavery. Violence is not just an Old Testament problem. The other option is to believe that God, in his omnipotence, knew that the Canaanites, no matter how long they were given, if they were given a million years, they'd never turn to God. So God decides, well, I'm just going to wipe you out now, uh, and let's get it out of the way. Let's not give you, uh, you know, let's not, let's not dilly-dally around this. Um, and that works for some folks. It works for many folks. I'll be honest, I struggle with the idea that God created people for destruction. Um, the third option is to cherry-pick Uh, the passages that you come to in Scripture, and just ignore the bits of violence. I lean heavily into this. It seems like the easiest option. We'll just just pretend that's not there. Let's focus instead over here. It's probably the easiest option, but I want to suggest it's probably not the right thing to do, however tempting it is. Um, A fourth option that people do do is to just walk away from your faith. One of my favorite musicians... uh, is in a band called Pedro the Lion. He used to be a worship leader at a massive church in the U.S. Uh, And in one of his songs, um, he, he, he wrote, on one of his albums, he wrote a song called When We Fell. And he says, and what am I afraid of? Whom did I betray? In what medieval kingdom does justice work this way? And he just couldn't, he just walked away from his faith. And he still has walked away from his faith. Um, When it comes to violence in this book about humanity, trying to work out uh, who God is and trying to know God, um, perhaps we should take the same approach as Jesus. And in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't just cherry-pick his favorite bits of Scripture and leave out the violent parts. In fact, he does the exact opposite, doesn't he? And Jesus actually quotes and names the violence of um, the Jewish Scriptures, um, and Jesus doesn't sort of say, right, it says this, forget about it. He doesn't abolish the law. He's very clear about that. He doesn't undo them. Just kidding. When, when that, yeah, just forget that. We were kidding. All right. Jesus fulfills those bits of Scripture. Jesus perfects them. So, for example, the Mosaic law had a good intention um, when it sought to prevent the escalation of violence promoted by Cain and Lamech, and by asking for um, not an escalation of violence, but fair, uh, retri- I can't say this word. I've written it down, so I must understand it, but I can't say it. Ret- retributive, retributive, retributive. That sounds right. Fair, retributive violence. So the Bible says an eye for an eye. You know, don't go too far, but if someone pokes your eye out, you poke their eye out, all right? And then we can leave it there. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, turn the other cheek. Have a go at loving your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And there is no explicit command in Scripture to hate your enemies, but it's implied all over the place. And it's something that humanity is really good at. You know, we don't have to be encouraged to do that. We just naturally want to dislike the people who we think dislike us. And Jesus says, don't hate your enemies, love them. And that's not abolishing the law, that's perfecting it. And so when Jesus does that on the Sermon on the Mount, um, he, doesn't, he doesn't teach sacred text as black and white absolutes. Jesus prioritizes love over law, and he certainly prioritizes people over ritual observance. And in doing that, Jesus is speaking a new word to violence. And it's easy for that Jesus to do that because in doing that, he's being true to Scripture. Because we, when we approach Scripture, we think that Scripture is a bit more, it either says this or it says that. But it's easy to go through Scripture and to understand that one of the best ways to read Scripture is to, to see that it's full of testimony and then counter-testimony. Now, we haven't got time to unpick all of that, all the, you know, tonight, but the Jewish people in particular are very good at this and they're scholars just saying well it says this but it also says this it says that but it kind of says that and then they wrestle with the scriptures and so when you approach the bible for every god anointed king in the scriptures there's also I don't know a servant woman like Hagar who's not even a true Israelite she's just a servant a slave Abraham kicks her out the first person in scripture to give God a name So it's full of testimony and counter-testimony. And so Jesus, when he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, he's he's well within keeping of um, the tradition of Scripture. Undoing judgments. So we do the best that we can to practice enemy love. Um, It's not easy, but hopefully we all do do the best that we can, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would inspire us and give us strength and courage to do that more and more. Um, And we're glad that Jesus has shown us that other way to live. But when we read the Bible, um, particularly as you get towards the end, you get to this point where you think, hold on a minute, is my job here on earth to love everybody and to forgive everybody but in the meantime, God is holding an eschatological, it's a posh word for a Sunday evening, eschatological. I just mean like what's going to happen at the consummation of all things in the ends of ages. I'm out here forgiving everybody and loving everybody, and God's got this eschatological can of whoop-ass that he's going to open on everybody. How come I have to forgive, and God's going to pour out wrath and judgment? Now, Sometimes we're well into wrath and judgment, and we want a bit more divine smiting to be going on. Uh, If we conjure up images of, of, I don't know, Putin, for example, we think, come on, God, can you hurry this up a bit, please? But we might still wonder about the value of us forgiving and loving our enemies if God is just going to send a bunch of people to hell. Why Why do we do that? And... Um, Jesus helps us out again in the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. So Jesus is saying the reason why you do this, why you love your enemies, is to be children of God. The inference there is, you know, you've got to love your enemies because God loves God's enemies, because children resemble their parents. And so God doesn't have a different moral or ethical code to us. Um, By the way, this is another really good example of what I was just saying, because the law taught in Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 17, that if you did not obey God, God would shut the skies and it would not rain. See what Jesus is doing there again in the Sermon of the Mounts. He makes his sun rise, on evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Jesus, what about that bit in Deuteronomy? Jesus is fulfilling and perfecting the law. And Paul picks up on this in Romans, uh, his letter to the Romans, Romans five eight, a verse that most of us, if you've grown up in church, you'll be familiar get to be familiar with it says christ died for us while we were still sinners when we were enemies of god we were reconciled to god through the death of his son so if you're out there loving your enemies and trying your best to forgive everyone don't think that you're doing something that god is not prepared to do you're doing exactly what god is doing god is a just judge and god alone has the right to judge people and to judge enemies but what if god gives up that right to judge Now, uh, and I heavily edited uh, what I was going to say because I I dove into a parable uh, and maybe we will do that if we've got enough time. Um, But there are, but I took it out because I thought I was going on for too long. Um, There are bits of Jesus' teaching that suggest that that is not the case and that God doesn't relinquish God's right to judge. And we could look at, as I said, at some of those examples. But let me leave you with the cross and the world powerlessness of Christ on the cross. And as you imagine that picture, it kind of looks like God has given up on his right to judge. God does have that right. But God is on the cross in Christ and with Christ, loving his enemies, instead of judging them. I know there are plenty of bits in the teaching of Jesus about hell, and I also know that when Jesus is talking about hell, he's using imagery um, of hell as imagined by Greek culture and myth a lot of the time. Maybe Jesus takes those pictures of hell, popular in his time, and uses them to talk about a God who is not like the other gods. Jesus' picture of God, and note that Jesus himself is the picture of God, is the kind of God who gets dirt under his fingernails, a God who can serenely hover above chaos, a God who purposefully created you and all creation and is yet to give up on any aspect of the creation that God has made. The kind of God who's willing to look to their side at a thief dying on the cross and say, yeah, not, you have not really made any kind of deep creed or confession, but today you'll be with me in paradise. And so maybe Jesus uses a popular picture of hell in order to describe a place that will be rolled up like a scroll and tucked under God's arm. And maybe as God rolls up hell like a scroll and tucks it under his arm, God will quote his own son, who's quoting the Psalmist, who was an imperfect human who loved to imagine God smiting the enemies of God, and says, it is finished. I'm not sure if God has arms to tuck hell under, but you get the point. And so that story of humanity wrestling with God, which is what the word Israel means, that's the story of the Bible. And that's the Bible that I love and that I still wrestle with and I still don't fully understand, but it's such a joyful, hope-giving book that has that theme of love and purpose and identity running all the way through it. And that's why I love the Bible, even if it is a hard book to read. Amen.
0: Hello. Thank you. Um, We're going to get started. It sounds like you've had some really good conversations, which is brilliant. That's a huge part of the reason that we're here is to hear something that makes us think so that we can engage ourselves. And then through it somehow, uh, God speaks to us and, and helps us and challenges us or comforts and brings us peace, which we talked about at the beginning there. So we're here to, to think and ask questions and then we leave um, somehow closer with God as our prayer. Um, but we've got some questions come in, which is great. They're good questions, show that we've engaged really well with what's been said. Um, they're Yeah, they're great. So we'll start with that and then, um, and Harry said just to fire them at him. So we'll Ask a couple of them, and then me and Joy might have other things we just say, but what about this, and we'll see where we go. Um, if you have any others, then I won't be rude looking at my phone, but keep texting them or bring your paper up. Have you got paper? Sorry, yeah, if you have paper, come and bring it now before we get started. Is any? No. If you haven't, that's fine. But if you have other questions, text them through as we go. Um, that would be great. The first question is, um, how do we go about respecting other people's different views around what is said in the Bible, especially around difficult theological subjects? Wow. Um, that's... How do we go about respecting other people's views about what's said in the Bible, maybe also respecting different people's approaches to reading the Bible, uh, especially around some tricky theological subjects? Insert your favorite tricky theological <laughs> subject in your mind. You
1: well... Um... I mean, I think it's really important that we do respect one another's views about that. And um, so, for example, my boss, uh, who you know is Bishop Pete, and I do as well, um, we have different approaches to the Bible, and we have different theology about some stuff, but there's loads of stuff, common ground that we have as well. So... Um, I think it's really important that we, that we do respect where people are coming from and that we listen to them. And one of the best ways is to talk to them and to listen to w- why people f- feel and understand the scriptures in the way that they do. I alluded when I was talking earlier to the fact that if you ever, if you ever get a chance to, to discuss with Jewish scholars um, then it's an amazing thing to do because they will disagree passionately Um, and vehemently with one another, and then, and they'll not get to a conclusion or, right, we've decided this is the answer. They go away with more questions and the same questions. And that's the point. So I think it's really important that we listen, that we talk to people, that we hear, that we share, that we feel it's a safe place. And for me, the safe place, the safest place is this. It's the creeds. And, you know, I, there's the it's usually easy to find some common ground and for me the common ground is, is the creeds of the church and and that's for me the stuff that i love to talk about and bearing that in mind the other thing that i always try to keep in mind loads and loads is is we we, we think oh the bible is the word of god and it can and it is but also the word of god is jesus the divine logos and Jesus is the word of God because word is action, it's God's action. Jesus is God's action in the world. And the Bible is the testimony to Jesus and how we understand Jesus. And Jesus is the word of God. And Jesus said, if anyone has seen me, they've seen the Father, they've seen God's." And so for me, when there's loads of discussions going on or people disagreeing or whatever, I say, but we all agree on on this, and we generally do, and, um, and the this is Jesus, and who Jesus is, and Jesus is God revealed to us, and I have a little personal uh, catchphrase that, um, I mean, certainly Sarah, who's an old friend here tonight, I didn't, don't mean you're old Sarah, um, I don't mean you're a friend either, um, <clears throat> uh, she's heard me say this before, life with Jesus is better than life without Jesus, and for me, that's that's the, our common ground, is Jesus Christ and just helping people to know who Jesus is. So there's, when there's lots of discussions raging, I say, sometimes I'll just say, well, let's park that for now. We, we can discuss that in eternity or we'll work that out later. What really matters now is, you know, have you got hope? Do you wake up in the morning feeling really glum or despondent? Or do you believe that Jesus is your savior and has got good stuff for you and loves you? Um, so that's where I'm on that
2: one. I like that. That's cool. And I do remember you talking about the creeds back in the day at St. Peter's, um, and I've always found that a helpful anchor point. And Sarah, you're my friend. <laughs> James, where are the questions? Are they the top one? Okay. Oh, well, we've got all sorts going on in here. So oh, and I can, only, I can only find two. So we'll go with one of those.
0: It's it's because different people have texted in questions, so that's how. I thought Joy understood how a phone would work in that way, and potentially as well. Whilst Harry was talking, you might have picked a question, (laughs) but it's all good. Um, So 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 there was a couple of questions about. so, yeah I think that the creed thing kind of answers that a little bit that we have something that the whole church has always agreed to but how are there kind of core texts is the, one of the questions or are there specific things that we say we have to go with that or we have to agree with that or we're not really Christians anymore and we're something else or we lose our identity um because the creeds aren't written in the scriptures um, but also but I, I I do wondered is are we just are you kind of just saying rather than think of core texts, let's approach it differently to that, but are there any cortex that we need
1: to hold on to as Christians was a question. So I mean I think, firstly I think that, that, that just because we're asking questions of the Scriptures it doesn't mean that we don't believe the Holy Scripture and that they you know, I firmly believe that the Bible as we have received it, the canon of scripture, those books that have been chosen uh, by the church as this is what you need for your faith, and that the authors of those various books were inspired by the Holy Spirit, by God, to put that stuff down on paper in the way that they put it on paper. And all the editors and redactors and all those people, they were all inspired by the Holy Spirit to give us what we have as the Holy Bible, um, the Scriptures. I absolutely firmly believe that and and place a value on all of the Scriptures. Um, but just because it's in Scripture and just because it's um, true, it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the truth. So, for example, in the book of Job, it starts with um, the suffering of job, then job and all, and all his mates sit down and they have this great long theological d- discussion and If you stopped reading before you got to the last chapters of job you 'd miss the bit where God basically says that is nonsense, what you guys have all been chatting about, so that those their understanding of the suffering you, you need that last bit, and in the same way in scripture, you need to understand scripture through a particular lens um, and a particular view of this is how we understand Scripture. And that doesn't mean that the Scriptures you're looking at are are not Scripture and not given by God and not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when you read the story of um, uh, the Canaanite genocide in Joshua 7 and the whole, you know, go out and slaughter every man, woman and child and kill them and, you know, show them no mercy, you, you have to read that through the lens of Christ's jesus christ 's approach to that um, so that's that that for me is the the, the core um, is understanding it through the eyes of and the person of Jesus christ
2: that's really helpful so the question that we've one of the questions that we've had here which kind of relates to what you've just been saying but um I think you'll be able to go into it a bit more deeply. This person's asked, how do you stop pick and mix? And they've gone on from there and said, how do we use the Bible and stay distinctly Christian when we're more open about interpretations of the Bible?
1: I think it's the opposite of... The opposite of faith isn't doubt. Um, And and I think it's really important that we do... uh, ask questions of scripture and ask questions of our faith. And in some ways, the opposite of faith could be certainty because it's about faithful questioning rather than blind acceptance. Um, And certainly if you read the gospel passages, Jesus time and again um, challenges that idea of blind acceptance of just the ritual or the the law that you've been shown by, by rote. You know, oh, I know that you tithe, Uh, Even one tenth of your spices, and you, you know, you you measure out the, you know, imagine measuring out, you know, one tenth of a gram of mint or something like that. Um, And Jesus is always challenging, saying it's got to be about the motivation for that has to be love. Um, It has to be the love of God revealed um, uh, through creation and to creation. Um, So. I think that the way the the, the way to approach um, scripture is, is, as I've said, is to to understand it and to handle it in the way that Jesus um, understood it and and handled it. And that's not always easy to to wrestle with that and to get to grips with that. Um, and I understand it's it's easy to say that, and people will say, "Well, this is how I think Jesus read scripture," and someone else will say, "Well, I think Jesus read scripture in a slightly different way." Um, so I think it's just to keep questioning and asking, and to also the the other really important thing is it's not just a book, is it? Um, and so I want to really talk about a sp- uh, our faith and our spirituality um, when it comes to reading Scripture. Um, and to say, ask the Holy Spirit to inspire you um, as you're reading Scripture. Um, and to pray through Scripture and to read Scripture in different ways, use different methods and um, and, a, and approach it in different ways. And don't just read your favourite bits; read some of the other bits as well. But for it to be actually rooted in practical, active spirituality and faith and drawing closer to God, rather than it being um, a, a routine thing. I, I forgot partway through there what the question was, but
2: sorry. I've got a, I've got a kind of my own allied question, if you like. So, if We've perhaps grown up with an inherited way of thinking about scripture that is potentially quite formulaic, and then uh, we start asking questions of, of scripture and how to read it. We end up perhaps thinking about the Bible in a slightly different way than before. Do you think that makes the task of being a follower of Jesus? harder or do you think it makes it easier or do you, what do you think it does to the experience of being a disciple?
1: I mean I think it widens it and, and for me it makes me more hopeful um, and more full of joy. It, it, is, it is difficult, I get that it's difficult. I mean the, the most obvious example that's really like grounded is you know I've got two boys who one's going on 17, have, how old is the other one Zoe? All I know is he's taller than me. Um, And, you know, when they were kids, we said, listen, lads, never touch the oven door. It's hot. And then as they grow up, they know it's not always hot. And sometimes there are an appropriate moment to touch the oven doors, and other times there's an inappropriate moment to touch the oven door. And it's a bit like that with with our understanding of Scripture, that, that there are you know we we grow and we develop in that and there are some bits that we understand as you know um and how we we wrestle with it sometimes it's really good to be really simple and really black and white but then as we get on we just realize that faith and life is difficult and you start to read the gospels and you think hold on a minute every time someone asked Jesus a question he just answered it with another question And you just realize that it's not as clear-cut as you sometimes thought it was. And that doesn't, you think, sometimes that can be a bit scary, but also it can be a bit opening up to the fullness of life. So actually a better example would be, might be, lads, you never play in the roads. You say that when they're five or six. When they're ten, they're like, hold on, Dad, we live on a cul-de-sac, and we can spot a car coming, and they can kick a football in the road, and all of a sudden it's opened up to them. And I think it can be a bit like that with Scripture, is when we start to ask those faithful questions rather than just blind accept, all of a sudden it all opens out, and we find this mystery and this joy and this depth to Scripture that's, that's really rewarding, sometimes scary. It is because you get on these like whitewater rapid rides, and you think, whoa, what's going on here? Um, I've used lots of mixed metaphors. I'm going to stop now.
0: Thank you. Um, there's another question on a slightly different... Uh, thing, but I, I, I think we really, as we've we've been through life and had questions, and as we grapple with things that we don't always that don't always make sense. Based on what we see and what some Christians tell us and what our experience is and where we think God might be leading us and the, the, all those tensions, to be to always grounded in our spiritual faith and and linked to the Holy Spirit um, is the most important thing, isn't it? And I know on the one of the tables they said they the love that you mentioned that before that we always approach the bible like that and there's always more questions and always more ways to think about and ask historical questions or literary questions but that's because it's such an amazing rich book and so but we have to take it back and say it's about there's a point where it's helpful to about me and god and how do we use it for that because a lot of the other questions are like kind of wow there's a lot going on there is there a simple answer to understanding it? and and i guess you've sort of said it there that the simple answer is to just sit down with you and God and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and then go with that because a, there's a personal journey, not a legalistic one.
1: And I think there is a simple answer and the simple answer is one we all learn at Sunday school, Jesus. And I say that quite flippantly, but that is always the answer. And I always, why do I read, when I open my Bible, why am I reading? Because I wanna know Jesus more. I just wanna know Jesus more. And I wanna help other people to get to know Jesus. So the answer for me is it's always Jesus question <laughs> <laughs> don't give Sarah the microphone whatever you do
0: she's got it written down there so oh, okay. it might <laughs> okay
1: <laughs> wow. Can you just,
0: just because some people might if, might not have heard us, just quick back what do you think the question was.
1: So the question was, how do you help someone out of their chaos? To How do you help someone to know that they are a human made in the image of God uh, and valued by God? Is that right? Um, I mean, the better... Again, the, the simple answer is, is Jesus. So you can't, you can't just tell them over and over again, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, or, or anything like that. You have to show people like that what it looks like. And that might mean getting alongside them a little bit. Um, the best example I've ever had of seeing that in action is through attending AA meetings, um, where you just assure people there is a higher power and you, you, you've got to let go of your thought that you can save yourself and trust that there is a higher power he wants to rescue you, and then if you're in AA, you have to carefully say, that higher power is Jesus, um, but it could be, that uh, higher power could be someone else, um, or something else, I suppose, yeah. Okay.
0: She's written something down, so you must have said something good, so great, thank you. Um, we've got not oh. a load more time for questions, but there was a more specific question about something. So rather than how do we approach the Bible, someone asked, um, could you clarify your understanding of hell?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, My understanding of hell is that I am hopefully agnostic. So what I mean, when I use the word agnostic, it means I don't know. And anyone who knows is certain about what hell is and the nature of hell, then I would challenge that. And we can go to different scriptures and different parts of the Bible um you know um but i'm hopeful in my i'm not entirely sure that God. i'm i'm hopeful that we'll be surprised by how empty hell is and how full heaven is um that's that's basically where i am so um you know paul said even though in adam all died even so in christ shall all be made alive And the alls there have to be made the same thing. The impact of sin on creation is all pervasive. No one escapes it. And the impact of Christ's death, his salvific power, uh, his resurrection power, to me, just reaches so far um, that I'm really hopefully agnostic. I don't know, but there's enough evidence in Scripture that suggests to me that heaven will Heaven will be a lot fuller than we imagine, and hell will be a lot emptier. And there's also, for me, I lean a little bit on those those scriptures that says, you know, um, that imply that Christ, the fullness of Christ's victory. I'm not sure. That's why I use that picture. And please, everyone, it's absolutely fine to disagree with me and talk to my boss next week when he comes here I'm sure he disagrees with me as well. Um, but you know. I, and maybe I'm cherry-picking. I love the bits of Scripture which imply that, um, that Jesus' victory is full and complete, and he, he redeems all of creation. And I'm not sure how that can happen when there's still hell eternally existing somewhere. Um, maybe it can, because God does loads of amazing stuff, but I'm hopefully agnostic. Um, and I quite like—Tom Wright wrote a really good book on this, I think— um, and he's a good evangelical, isn't he? Um, and you get loads of posh words for this, like um, uh, what is it called? Uh, uh, conditional immortality, or um, uh, annihilationism, or eventual annihilationism, and all this kind of stuff. I do think that if 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 there are people who are so determined and so turn their back on Christ and commit that unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, then I think that they remove themselves from the the creator, the source of all life. And I think as they journey further and further away from the source, the creator of all life, then at some point they cease to be human, and at some point they cease to exist. some of that i'm kind of making up because scripture i just don't think is very plain um but that's roughly where i am in that
2: i think that's the closest we're going to come to a mic drop moment but i could ask questions all night so i'm going to sneak one last one in um so and i'm going to have to go a bit around the houses to explain what my question is so what a surprise. <laughs> right, when I was doing my master's, um, I... Just drop that in there. Yeah. <laughs> I spent a bit of time writing and thinking about the refugee crisis. And in the process of doing that, I started to see the theology of empire and the way it permeates the whole of scripture in a way that I had never ever seen it before and it was like a big light bulb went ding and it it has changed my thinking forever not only about that issue but also about so many of the narratives that we find in scripture and I wonder whether there are similar experiences that you've had where you've maybe had one set of hermeneutic glasses that you you grew with and life or a reading of scripture or coming up against particular issues or whatever have made you go oh I see that really differently now
1: yeah there there was one and again I'll attribute this to Tom Wright who years ago he came to Sheffield it was um it was before he was Bishop of Durham I think but he was this well-respected theologian and somehow or other because they asked him so far in advance I think. I think Martin Snow was the vicar of Christchurch-Pittsmore at the time, and they invited him to come and do something like this at Christchurch-Pittsmore. And I'm pleased to say less people turned up than are here tonight for me. So uh, he's obviously not as good at the as I am. Um, So, um, And he was talking about a thing that he's written about loads, and I really, really value it. He talks... He's a much cleverer man than I am, and he talks about stuff like Shakespeare and things. But he, he sort of talks about, imagine, um, I think the analogy is, is something like, imagine that there's, there's a Shakespeare play, um, but, and there are, because uh, he even talks about the acts of the play as creation um, and that sin, and then recreation and all this kind of stuff. But he says, imagine if, you're, if the, 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 you've got the fifth act, but the fourth act is missing, it's been lost. And we, you've got Acts 1, 2, and 3, then and it's missing, and, but you know how the story ends. He says, really well-trained Shakespearean actors would be able to improvise, knowing what's happened in the story and where the story is going. They could improvise what happens in that missing act. And each time it might be slightly different, but they'd arrive at the same end point. And he says, that's kind of what the church is called to do. When you read through scripture, we have, you know, creation and then uh, Abraham and then Israel and then exile and then return from exile and Jesus. And, and then there's this bit where it's the church and that's the bit we're in. And we know how it's going to end, um, but how do we get to that point? And uh, that for me was a bit of a, a really challenging moment. Um, and I think part of the other bit to that was this thing that really helped me about reading Scripture on a tra- trajectory. So nowhere in Scripture does it categorically say slavery is wrong. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. And one or two places in Scripture it will say stuff like, um, masters, treat your slaves kindly. And we think, whoa, 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 Can't shouldn't we be saying, masters, set your slaves free? But it was it was it was written for a time and for an empire that was built on slavery um spoiler alert many are still um and um it it wasn't possible to say that then but we are to read scripture on a trajectory and the trajectory of scripture was slavery needs to be abolished and it's that faithful interpretation that jesus has kind of pointed us in a direction given us a gentle shove and we've got to still keep going and the, the universe is bent, it's curving round to justice and love, and we have to be faithful interpreters of that. Sometimes we'll get it a little bit wrong, sometimes we'll do it a little bit differently from everyone else, um, and then the next time we you know, but that's where we're heading. So I think those two things, faithful interpretation, uh, uh, of um, faithful, what am I looking for, where you make it up as you go along? faithful improvisation and reading on a trajectory is where is this pointing us what can we extrapolate what would jesus do
0: wow thank you um i think it's not just me that there'd be a lot to think about and process and we are going to f- uh, finish so um thank you so much uh, before uh before we go though it would be good for us to have like at moment. You want to say something?
1: Else? Yeah, I just want to, sorry, just want to really quickly say again, it's absolutely fine to disagree with me and think that I talked a load of old nonsense, okay? And um, the Holy Spirit will inspire you as you read scripture. And if we chatted, we'd have loads of stuff in common. And, um, you know, so that's fine. I just wanted to really get that out there. Thanks. Nice. Thank you.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. And, and yeah, that's kind of why we're here is to come as we are with any questions we have and, and listen to others' ideas and then um, do what, you, what we've said is to come back to God and say, Spirit, speak to me. Um, and as well, I think something that we can always remember is that through all of it, it's, life is better with Jesus and we all agree on that, So if, if we're um, Christians. So um, yeah, for that, f- to kind of stay true to that, let's, we just have a, a, a little bit of quiet time. You can write something down or whatever you wanna do. Um, just and ask God in your heart to speak to you about something that's said today, and maybe one thing will be a, a truth um, that Harry said, or maybe something that, else that God inspires you um, now, and we'll, we won't go on forever, and then I'll, I'll finish up, so we'll just have a little a silent moment.